Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. My great friend Richard Curland, Vancouver immigration lawyer, who's advised federal government and the province of Quebec on immigration matters, joins us on The Roy Green Show on the Corliss Radio Network. And Richard was at a, a rally in Vancouver earlier this morning to... Uh, Richard, you were there to, to challenge the position taken by the, the President of the United States. Yes, uh, I was not alone. Uh, there were leaders of uh, Canada's uh, mainstream religious groups right across the spectrum uh, present, uh, and uh, it was quite the event. Um, what does this say to you? I'll ask you what it says to you as an individual. You have a lot of world experience. You have a lot of international experience on a personal and then the professional level as well. So personally and professionally, what does Mr. Trump's decision, the executive action, say to you? Well, it says to me, uh, this is a cagey politician 2.0. What's going on, in my personal view, is that a politician is playing to his base, implementing an executive order which reasonably uh, he ought to know will not withstand judicial scrutiny. So when the court slams down the Trump executive order, uh, the president can turn to his base to say, look, we tried, I tried, it didn't go, those gosh darn judges, and he's free and clear of the political promise. I think that's what's going on. So, interestingly, I was wondering about the timing, and I spoke with Dr. Zudi Jasser about this yesterday. He'll be joining us again today, the co-founder of the uh, um, the uh, American Muslim Reform Movement and a former lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy. And I said it was the timing. And I spoke to uh, Colonel, uh, Lieutenant Colonel Steve Day, the former commanding officer of JTF-2, our Canadian Special Forces uh, National Anti-Terrorism uh, Military Unit. And I said the timing is really kind of strange to me. There wasn't anything in the way of any precursor. There wasn't any introduction. There wasn't any real conversation. I mean, he'd said it, it, President had said it during the campaign, of course, but it suddenly appeared as an executive action. And I wondered about the timing. Now, you have just said something that made me think that next week, President of the United States said he's going to name his nominee for the Supreme Court of the United States. So, if, you're, if your hypothesis is correct, Stephen, then there's tremendous pushback to the EA, the executive action that he's undertaken on refugees and immigration. The court strikes it down, and the president can then say, see, I'll take your argument a step further. See, the courts can't be trusted, so therefore we need this individual to be on the Supreme Court to make sure that the appropriate decisions that are taken in the Oval Office are in fact then upheld, underscored, and supported by the courts. And there we go. Uh, that, that completes the cycle of political strategic planning. I, I think that's absolutely bang on. Uh, we should expect to see more <laughs> policy miracles like this over the next uh, first 100 days. Uh, and unfortunately, there are victims of this. What bogs the mind is how someone can reasonably say that a person cleared by United States intelligence and security mechanisms uh, who has a visa, uh, would not have a visa without that background check, is suddenly stranded, if not detained in an immigration jail. That, that's just amazing. At a minimum, uh, fair warning, e even a one-week notice to not get on the airplane with your approved American visa would have been appropriate. Why or why would you want to, in mid-flight, catch people who on arrival were expecting the Statue of Liberty light of freedom and find themselves in the dark recesses of immigration detention? It, it, it boggles the mind. There's a lot of support for President Trump. Uh, yes, indeed. And uh, that polling question, I think the result would have been different had the extra words uh, appeared 
would you would you like to uh, would you like to ensure that every single person immigrating from known terrorist regions undergo a security and background check before uh, receiving a visa? That's what happens. That wasn't on the question. And but but Richard, that would that would be understood. That would be understood by people that there'd be a background check. If you're going to get a green card, and you're coming from an area of the world where terrorists are, you know, if we can say they're terrorist-producing regions, I think that was the question. I can find the question again. The Quinnie. Well, today, today, but if that, that's, that's, uh, that's let me finish, let me, Richard, let me finish that. Sorry, that's, sorry. that's understood by most people. I would think that a background check, proper check, is going to be done before you get your green card. True enough. Uh, the the total number of murders committed by individuals in the United States from these target countries that are subject to this executive order in the last um, 30 years, zero. Zero. Yet there's over 2,200 deaths attributed uh, to uh, green card holders or American temporary status holders from Saudi Arabia. But Saudi Arabia is not on that list. So in terms of a fact-based analysis, there's something, there's something missing from the, from the pie. Uh, until a few hours ago, Canada's very own immigration minister has been barred from the United States because he was born in Somalia. What gives? Well, um, we're going to find out. Now, it's within, it's within the purview of the President of the United States See, here's where I think the courts may not be able to support the position that these two judges have taken, or one, I don't know if it's one or two uh, judges in the United States took yesterday, and that is that constitutionally, mm. the President of the United States has the right to make the decision Mr. Trump made. And you know who told us that? The former director of the Office for Citizenship and Immigration, United States Service, under Barack Obama. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Uh, Richard, share with us, before we get into anything else, share with us a little bit, I was just reading earlier the words that you spoke this morning at the, uh, at the what, we, what would you call it, a rally, a protest? What, what's the word? Uh, well, I, I guess it's more a rally for hope uh, aimed at bringing to Canada... Uh, the folks who had pre-cleared visas passed security checks and are lingering in American jails or, or at the airports. Uh, Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister, issued a tweet that was heartwarming. We felt across the entire country that Canada's diversity is, is our strength. And, and now it's time to act. Uh, Canadian immigration history has seen before uh, cases where people have been close to our shores, at our shores, uh, and, and faced uh, detention or, or, or faced uh, 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 dire circumstances. And we can't just turn a blind eye to these uh, relatively small number of people. Uh, if the Americans don't want them, we should take them because uh, their security cleared. And we can't send them back. We can't allow them to be detained, not, not under the Trump watch. Are you comfortable with the president taking the action to stop the refugee, um, any refugee influx? Hello? In the can you hear me? Uh-oh. Richard, can you hear me? Can't hear. Hello. Okay. Hello, Richard. Now I got you. Okay, I, I don't know what. Sorry, am I comfortable? No, let me let me, let me finish. Are you? I, I shouldn't use the word comfortable. Professionally, will you accept that the president of the United States has the right to make the decisions that he's made? Even if we if we just take out of the equation the people who were, as you as you pointed out, stuck in the middle, um, and and found themselves not knowing what to do or where to go yesterday. Will you accept professionally that he that he has the right to do that, and would you grant him the um, the uh, some some I don't know lassitude that that given his what he knows about security and what he knows about global threats that he may have made based on what he knows the decision that is best for the United States. Not only do I accept he has the right, I will defend his right 
to do what he did. Uh, that's, that's a hallmark of American democracy in a system with checks and balances that has provided the world with a stunning example of uh, democracy in action for literally hundreds of years. So absolutely, uh, President Trump has the right to do what he has done. Uh, it, 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 he's expressing the will of the individuals who brought him to the party, who brought him to office. And uh, it's only appropriate that uh, the political uh, decision will confront uh, the judiciary. And, and that's, uh, that's the way uh, uh, the American uh, uh, democracy is designed. So may, I, a, a, yeah. now may I play for you what... Uh, Stephen Legomsky, Legomsky told us yesterday, who's the uh, former director of chief counsel for the Office of Citizenship and Immigration Services in the United States. One, uh, have a listen to the question I asked him and then the answer. Some legal experts argue that Donald Trump doesn't have the constitutional power to make the refugee and immigration decisions he's made this week. You disagree. Um, I think it's a very difficult constitutional question. Um, there is a law here in the United States, which says that uh, any time the president uh, determines that the admission of any class of aliens, to use the statutory language, would be, and now I'm quoting again, detrimental to the interests of the United States, unquote, uh, then the president does have the power to exclude that group of people. The problem is that um, if you exclude people on the basis of their religion, then there is a serious constitutional question uh, as to whether this violates uh, the guarantee of the free exercise of religion. What makes it complicated here is the fact that technically, officially, uh, this is not a ban based on religion, it's a ban based on which country you are from. It's just that every one of the countries that, is, that appears on the list that you just described uh, happens to be a Muslim-majority country. And given uh, Mr. Trump's campaign rhetoric in which he initially advocated a ban on, on Muslims, um, there could be a strong argument made that um, despite what it looks like on paper, in practice, this is really a ban on Muslims. So there's Stephen Legomsky, the um, former chief counsel for the Office of uh, Citizenship and Immigration Services in the United States. Stephen, what do you think? Well, uh, legally, uh, he's entitled to his uh, point of view. Uh, big picture, again, this is, this is part of the job description right. of the president of the United States. Based on the facts uh, that uh, he has access to, he is entitled to make that executive decision. If it's the wrong decision, quote unquote, uh, that then it'll be uh, struck down by the American uh, judicial process. Which you seriously, you, you very fundamentally believe that it was the wrong decision, and it was the wrong decision because, as you wrote in your, you said no. in your piece this morning, Lady Liberty bows its head in shame; its lamp has gone cold and dark. Yeah, for those individuals. You go yeah. ask that question to the people today, yeah. right now, at this minute, sitting in immigration detention, yeah. who did nothing wrong. You're talking about the people who were caught in the middle. Yeah. That's where your focus is. Now, uh, when Prime Minister Trudeau says, welcome to Canada, to, to the refugees, there are some people who have said to me, and I got a phone call earlier this morning at home, uh, what is Justin Trudeau doing? Is he doing? Uh, is he imitating Angela Merkel in, in Germany? What? How do you read that? No, 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 no. He, he's, he's done the right thing. Uh, it, it's at some political risk, his, his uh, almost heroic... But, but is he doing the same thing that Angela Merkel did, saying to everyone who... No. Who, no. Not at all. Okay. It, it, it's an entirely different context. Canada controls its borders. We have nowhere near the volumes... Uh, but he's, but he's, not offering, he's not offering the same invitation that the German <laughs> Chancellor offered <laughs> There's no free lunch and open door to Canada. No, no, period. no. But I, I understand that. I, I know that. Yeah. I know there's an ocean between us. But, yeah. but just fundamentally, philosophically, he's not doing this. Not saying the same. As far as you're concerned, he's not saying the same thing that Angela Merkel said. Welcome to, uh, welcome to, he, welcome he to Germany. In, in any way, uh, uh, proposing to adopt a German immigration policy. All right, Richard. I've, I've, I'm going to let you go, and I thank you so much for the time. You're a good guy. You're always with us. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. It's always a pleasure and an honor. Thank you so much. Take care. Richard Curland in Vancouver. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Dr. Zudi Jasser is the co-founder of the Muslim Reform Movement in the uh, United States. He's a former lieutenant, gen lieutenant general. I was just, 
how the hell do you get a lieutenant general in the Navy? Uh, Lieutenant commander, lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy. He's the past president of the Arizona Medical Association, and he's the author of the Battle for the Soul of Islam. He's been on the air with us many times over the years. I guess you didn't know, Zodi, there's the rank of lieutenant general in the Navy. Why don't I push the right button for a change? Uh, Yeah, lieutenant general. Zodi, good to have you back with us. Oh, it's great to be with you, Roy. Thanks for having me. And uh, it's always good to have conversations that are rational about what we're actually dealing with rather than the hysteria. Well, thank you. It's interesting. I had a, uh, received an email from a gentleman who defined himself as Muslim uh, earlier, and he says, I agree with both Trump and Trudeau. Uh, he says the, he agrees with tr- the decision Trump has taken, but he disagrees with the fact that people who are already in transit and had valid documentation to be in the United States find themselves intercepted in, in midstream. Um, what's your thinking on that? And remind us, please, what's your, what's your, what are your views of the executive action undertaken by the president? Well, I, I think your, your listener in the emails is right on target. Uh, and the issue has to do with, you know, uh, Senator uh, Lindsey Graham and Senator McCain put out a letter today basically telling the administration, listen, we want to keep our borders safe. You're doing it. Uh, your intentions are correct, but just whipping out an executive order without vetting it through Homeland Security and State Department, et cetera, about how folks on the ground will interpret it is problematic and ends up actually causing problems that uh, were unintended consequences. And that's really what's happening is that there's been a lot of misinterpretation by staff. There's nothing about Muslim in the executive order. Even President Carter, one of the most uh, uh, you know, dovish presidents we've ever had uh, stopped immigration from Iran at the time of the conflict and the hostage crisis. Uh, that wasn't a anti-Muslim uh, issue. It was the fact that we were in conflict in these havens. And it's funny how we Muslims, yes, we're maybe only 1% of the population in America, but we forget it's a quarter of the world's population. So it's almost as if any of the 56 majority countries, if we're at conflict with certain movements within them, then that all of a sudden becomes an anti-Muslim issue. It's a partisan hysteria, if you will. Our position on this, Roy, is that uh, we should welcome Muslims that share our values, and the messaging is very important since that's part of the conflict that's been ignored. But we should also uh, say we are not going to be haven for those who believe in theocracy, who believe in Islamic State jihadism, if you will. I am surprised Saudi Arabia, Qatar was not included the response from the administration has been, well, they're a little better in vetting, et cetera. I don't think so. I mean, the founding fathers of ISIS, for all practical purposes, are the Saudis and the Qataris, and even the AKP of Turkey. So, you know, it's uh, interesting that this has been sort of implemented so quickly. Uh, the answers to some of the granular uh, practical issues on the ground are, are still all left open. Zudi, how can they say that the Qataris and the Saudis are better at vetting because neither Saudi Arabia nor Qatar nor Kuwait, nor Bahrain, nor uh, Oman, nor the United uh, Arab Emirates have taken in any Syrian refugees. So how can they be better at vetting? They've never taken any in. Exactly. You're stating the obvious, which should be what's been talked about in the media. Not only have they not taken in, how can the narrative all of a sudden be, you have Senator Schumer and others just screaming that, oh, this is going to inflame the militants, and they're they're putting forth a two-page letter that... Uh, Iran put out their, their Islamic Supreme Council scolding us about how this is a gift to the radicals now because America is blocking all Muslims and it'll radicalize. I mean, this coming from the leaders of the most uh, oppressive, free, open-air prison on the planet, which is Iran, they're telling us now that that's going to inflame radicals while when the Saudis and others and their own country don't take any in, and in fact their country is fueling the genocide by Assad, that doesn't seem to cause any inflammation of the militants. But no, we putting a pause, and that's probably my only criticism, is that I don't understand why the Syria was indefinite, but the other countries are simply a pause. I mean, if anything, Syria, should we should say that we want to help the refugees that uh, need to, to come to freedom and liberty, but uh, and Syria shouldn't be sort of carved out of that since other countries are just as threatening as Syria when it comes to jihadism is concerned. And why would the Democratic minority leader in the Senate give more credibility to the uh, to the to Iranian government's position than that of his own government? Because his access, he doesn't even look at what Iran's saying. He doesn't 
his axis of conversation and thought is how do I get to the Republicans? How do I destabilize the current administration so that they don't succeed? And uh, it's not, you know, that's where the hashtag not my president came from and all this nonsense. When, in fact, if you look at the data the past few years, uh, President Obama has barely let 10 to 15,000 in from Syria. There was a, a block from any immigrants from Iraq for six months that was never called a Muslim ban. The numbers, all, all President Trump is doing is decreasing them from 100 to 50,000. Now, I might disagree, actually, with that. I think once we get the vetting against ideologies like Islamism and jihadism done, then I think we should you know, still be leading the world in sort of uh, bringing in those who want to share our values. But having said that, the, the facts belie the, the hysteria that the left is using to, again, use us Muslims as a wedge rather than dealing with the issue globally, uh, but simply as a political uh, uh, ping-pong ball. Yeah, I, uh, I was also looking at that uh, Quinnipiac poll that was released on the 12th of January. We've been talking about this. 48% of Americans said uh, they support, quote, suspending immigration from terror-prone regions, even if it means turning away refugees. 42% disagreed with that, but 48% agreed with it, and 10% had no opinion. And we spoke earlier with Richard Curland, a national immigration lawyer in Canada, Zudi, and I was asking Richard what he thought the motivation of the uh, of the U.S. president was, and we were kicking around a little bit, and he said something about the lower courts turning against the president. And I said, well, hold on, this thought occurs to me that he's a very clever politician. Maybe part of the, this is just the conversation we were having, uh, maybe part of the thinking is the lower courts turn against him on this, and then when he brings forward his Supreme Court nomination, he can say, look, you can't trust the lower courts, so we have to go forward with the nomination that I'm putting forward, and it creates a more stable platform for President Trump for a Supreme Court nomination. But maybe I'm being too Tom Clancy here. Yeah, I'm not sure if it was thought out especially that much, especially with all of the executive <laughs> orders they did this week. But at the end of the day, you know, every war we fought has had both the, the, the fear of those refugees from those areas, and whether it be World War II. Uh, and I thought it was actually a bit poor timing to sign this on the Holocaust Remembrance Day uh, since uh, the, the moral equivalency is just not there. I don't think they intended that, but uh, that's how it ended up. But yeah. whether it be World War II, the Vietnam War, we were fighting enemies that were part of those nation states that wanted to destroy us, but also within them were some of the greatest, ended up being some of the immigrants who are the greatest patriots we have in this country that we uh, basically defeated, not only militarily, but ideologically. And if we need to fight on both of those battlefronts, we can't let the the political landscape domestically be it about supreme court picks be it about uh, health care whatever it is to use the muslim issue as a wedge to then prevent us from having a global ideological response that needs to both be strong on the battlefront militarily but also strong ideologically and say hold on we're not going to let people come in that just simply are vetted against terror groups but rather against the conveyor belt of the cauldrons that brew jihadists which is a massive global movement you're listening to the roy green show weekends from two to five on am 900 chml aaron o'toole is former veterans affairs minister for canada he's also a former captain in the uh, in the air force the royal canadian air force and uh he's leadership candidate for the conservative party of canada mr o'toole, mr o'toole good to talk to you thanks for having me roy i like the introduction i always describe myself as a list of formers Former minister, former military, former lawyer, current MP. <laughs> it's as long as the formers are okay. Yeah, that's right. Right, as, and as long as you identify them, and nobody else identifies them for you. Well, and I hope to be some of them again. Maybe, uh, maybe minister or maybe prime minister. Uh, I don't know if the Air Force would have me back now, though. My, I'm not as in in as good a shape, and I'm probably not as up on the tactics as I once was. Well, I used to be in the RCNR, and I can guarantee you that I couldn't even pass that physical, which consisted of jump on the table and cough. <laughs> but listen, thanks for having me, and sorry good to have you with us. time to get on your show. I've heard some very good things about you personally. Uh, if you were Prime Minister, what would you be doing right now in response to Donald Trump's executive action? We know what our Prime Minister has done. What would Prime Minister O'Toole do? 
Well, the first thing I would have done is phone the president. Um, you know, one thing, Winston Churchill used to describe Canada as the linchpin between Europe and the United States. And I think Canada has a very unique role as the best friend and most important economic partner for the U.S. to be able to influence policy and to it, to be able to make sure that it doesn't adversely affect people or our interests. So my concern with Mr. Trudeau um, was he went to Twitter before it seems he picked up the phone. And that that's my problem. While, while some of the sentiment he was expressing I actually agree with, um, this is where a leader has to influence our friends, not by by just public relations stunts, but by picking up the phone and developing that relationship. Now, it sounds like a more sensible approach to take. What are your priorities for for Canada? When you look at the economy, when you look at the needs of the country, pipelines, uh, getting oil out of the ground into international markets, where does that rank with you? And then uh, what are your top three priorities for this country? Well, very high. Top, top priority, first off, is jobs. Um, the, the economy has been sluggish in recent years for a range of reasons. You know, oil prices, um, you know, slow growth in the United States up until recently. But since the Trudeau government has come in, they've raised taxes on people, on businesses, and now they're bringing in a series of payroll taxes. All of these things are making employers decide We're done. to hire people. And so we have a jobs crisis right now in Canada. It's most acute in the West, but we have a, a, a huge number of Canadians that are permanently unemployed. And that's what I would tackle first. And and then what, you see, I, I've never quite understood. I, I know uh, it's important to say, if you want to be the prime minister of the country, that jobs is the number one issue. But how does a prime minister, in fact, create jobs? I know prime ministers take credit when jobs have been created and blame their predecessors if, if that doesn't happen. The current prime minister is a case in point. Uh, but how does a prime minister create jobs? What do you do? Well, the interesting thing is all the ingredients are there, Roy. It's just we're doing things lazy as a government, and we're using 50-year-old systems. And I'll use a case in point. We have a temporary foreign workers program that originally was developed for seasonal work and agriculture, tourism, that sort of thing. But it quickly became a Band-Aid for all holes in the economy. So we were bringing in people to do temporary jobs in manufacturing, in IT, rather than pivoting our immigration and our training systems to have our own people fill these gaps. So I've said in the, in the, in the process of this campaign, I'm going to reform that, reform our immigration program, to actually bring people in on an accelerated basis to fill gaps in our economy, normally in the skilled trades. Um, the other thing I'm going to do is younger people. We're having people come out of college and university with high debt, very low opportunity, and in Toronto and Vancouver and some parts of the country, entering the most high-cost areas to live in the country. We should be changing the way we tax young people coming out of the school, so raising their personal exemption, making sure that they're while they're finding that job, they're doing those unpaid internships for the first few years, they're virtually paying zero tax. Yeah. What do you do about what do you do to, what do you do for, for companies so they have some cap space to create employment? I, I would like to see a recommitment to the small business uh, tax rate reductions that the Harper government had had put in place and had phased in over several years. Justin Trudeau reversed that. I like to say small business got us through the, the economic recession, and if every small business in the country hired one or two more people. That's 10 times larger than, you know, the Fords and GMs and the, and the plants opening a new line. We, we need to stimulate that. So we should do it through lower, lower tax rates for the small to medium-sized sector. We should allow uh, equipment purchases to be written off faster through the capital cost allowance. These sorts of things stimulating private sector without the government actually spending money. We're just foregoing revenue through tax. Yeah, I like that. Carbon tax. Speaking of tax, carbon tax, who you're with, Trudeau or Brad Wall? Uh, I'm with Premier Wall and have long been there. The, the carbon tax is another example of very lazy and misguided public policy. Here, here is the Liberals using higher taxes to address, address an environmental concern. It's their, their only answer to everything is to raise taxes. You know, the, the older uh, single senior on a fixed income who is heating their home with home heating oil, 
they are not the problem of global climate change. But Mr. Trudeau's plan makes all of those people pay. What I'd like to see is more of a phased-in approach with large emitters, uh, help them invest in their, uh, their carbon footprint reduction through depreciation, through capital cost allowance, and if over 10, 15, 20 years they drop their emissions, the large emitters, the 10 megaton and above sort of range people, we cut their taxes. So if society thinks it's a social good to have lower GHG emissions, it should be the government rewarding the, the, the company by maintaining their productivity, maintaining their production, but investing to get their footprint down, not forcing families and seniors to pay for it. I agree with you. There's no rational reason. There's nothing acceptable about the government's position or Mr. Trudeau's position that the individual taxpayer should again be forking into his or her overextended pocket to dig money out for his carbon tax. What about uh, about Aaron O'Toole versus Kevin O'Leary? Why you, not him? Well, because I'm a conservative, and he is not. And I'll tell you why. Just last week, I learned he donated to the Liberals in my riding, the Durham riding. In fact, it was revealed all his donation history is to Liberals or Democrats, including large donations to Al Gore in the United States. He's been pro-carbon tax. He's pro-liberal gun registry. He has been saying these ridiculous things on, on peacekeeping and sort of honest broker language on foreign affairs that is very typical of liberal positions on most of these things. So, so look, I like Kevin's positions on financial and fiscal issues. I come from the private sector as well. I want to see uh, less, you know, onerous regulation, more competitive tax rates. But to be leader of our party, you can't just be a fiscal conservative and then have liberal positions on everything else. So he's now going to have to, to, to really change who he is uh, but maybe he thinks he can do that. On, on television, you can change costumes and, I guess, play a new character, and maybe he thinks he can do that in politics, too. about 45 seconds left, Mr. O'Toole. Why you and not the other Conservative Party candidates? What, why, why should we choose you? Not, Look, not, I'm not a member of the party. I mean, collective we Canadians. Why should we choose you as our prime minister? Well, Roy, I'd like you to buy that $15 membership, but uh, to support me. Look, I think I can beat Justin Trudeau. Um, offering a smart, optimistic, conservative vision um, on you know, focusing on employment, on job creation for, for families and, and for young people out there. Mr. Trudeau is racking up $100 billion in debt, raising taxes on everyone, and zero full-time job growth, is what the PBO said. So Canadians want competent government, not celebrity government, not a celebrity-in-chief. That's what will contrast well, in my experience, in uniform, in the private sector, in cabinet, and my ability to, to bring conservatives from all sides and all parts of the country together, that's the solution. United with a smart plan, we can beat Trudeau in 2019. We have 10 seconds. How do people get around to supporting you? What do they have to do? Well, my site, AaronOtool.ca, you can register to hashtag join the mission. You can make a donation or look at my policy statements, detailed policy statements on a whole range of issues that are important. Other candidates tweet out two lines on policy you'll see we put a lot of thought into policy for our right. future. I invite them to check it out. All right, AaronO'Toole.ca. Thank you, Mr. O'Toole. We'll talk again. Thank you, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Let's see. Our Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, he lost many Canadians. 5.6 million voted Conservative in the last election. Since taking office and promising to be completely transparent and represent Canada and Canadians as we would want to be represented, our Prime Minister has told the New York Times that Canada has no core identity, that Canada is the first post-nation state. He's committed to delivering at least $2.6 billion to the United Nations for its climate change initiative, with more Canadian tax dollars to flow to the UN while boasting Canada is back. Meanwhile, Canadians are going hungry. Remember Ken in Edmonton? By the way, a number of our listeners have been so terrific. And they want to help Ken out. And I've gotten in touch with Ken, and uh, I've passed along his contact information. So thank you for your generosity, your kindness. He's a good man. Trudeau wrote a flowery eulogy for communist dictator and murderer of his own people, Fidel Castro of Cuba. He signed off on hugely inappropriate moving expenses for members of his inner circle at the PMO, Gerald Butts and Katie Telford, being the most highly profiled among them. 
He also claimed inappropriate travel expenses for himself while an opposition MP. Uh, he visited Washington, attended a left-wing think tank where the Alberta oil sands have been savaged, and spoke only one sentence about the severe difficulties being experienced by Albertans working in the oil patch. There was Prime Minister Trudeau's recent visit to the Agra Khan's private island in the Bahamas, where he, in violation of Canadian law, used the Agra Khan's private helicopter. The Agra Khan has received more than $50 million from Canadian taxpayers for his charitable foundation. Trudeau attempted to keep that trip secret, now has a date with the Parliamentary Ethics Commissioner, which he says he's looking forward to. His tour to reconnect with Canadians has hardly been a resounding success. There was dismissive blathering to a woman, a proud Canadian, who's being paying $1,000 per month for electricity in Kathleen Wynne's Ontario and is living with 65 bucks for two weeks. And then what sticks most in my craw is the Canadian Paris UN's climate, UN Climate Conference. The delegation sized 383 people, bigger than that of the U.S. and U.K. combined. And as for taking care of Canada's taxpayers' money while on the U.N. climate binge, listen to this. Food and drink expenses of just three bureaucrats in the Ministry of the Environment and Climate Change was more than $12,000. While Ken in Edmonton can't afford to heat his RV because of the increase in price of a bottle of propane under the Alberta NDP's carbon tax, and while in Ontario, people are going without electricity because they cannot afford the brutal price increases of electricity under Kathleen Wynne, allow me to repeat, three bureaucrats from the Ministry of the Environment and Climate Change, Canada, exceeded $12,000 for food and drink. Three staff members of the Ministry of the Environment and Climate Change under the direct management of Minister Catherine McKenna, and that doesn't include the cost of their hotel accommodations. And the minister herself spent $6,600 on hiring a freelance French photographer to take pictures of her so Canadians would know she was working hard. And then she, Catherine McKenna, posted on Twitter, um, I am mindful of how tax dollars are being spent. As someone who uses social media actively personally, I think there are ways that we can reduce costs. That's something we're committed to as a government, so I've asked Environment and Climate Change Canada officials to review the practices so that we can reduce the costs to Canadians and continue to communicate openly and effectively, Canadians. Be still my beating heart. So I tweeted to the minister the other day, Minister, how's the, uh, how's the study going? Be glad to talk to you about it on the air. Haven't heard back. Quel surprise. So here's a little bit of our Prime Minister on his uh, whatever I'm having he's paying tour. And he's confronted by a young man who challenges the Prime Minister. Have a listen. I don't know if you fully understand the degree to which you are alienating the young voters and progressives who voted you in. Because instead of listening to us, you're listening to climate-denying conservatives who have no intention of ever voting for you and in this turn has already been affected in your recent approval ratings. Thank you. So, just, it, with this all in mind... Let, please, let him finish his question. So, with this all in mind, I was just wondering why you and your... Uh, uh, sir, sir, he, he, agree, he agrees with you. Let him finish his question, sir. So, with this all in mind, I'm just wondering why you, you and your administration continue to approve pipelines that will negatively affect us for generations to come. Thank you very much. So, I'll try and condense my answer. The, the fundamental thing is we have been able to move forward on putting a national price on carbon pollution. We've put forward a pan-Canadian framework in which all different provinces have made commitments uh, to reduce their carbon emissions in ways that has never been done before. We are moving forward in a thoughtful way that recognizes that climate change is a tremendous challenge, but also an opportunity. An opportunity to create new jobs, to generate new ways of creating energy, of generating energy. Uh, new ways of moving forward in a way that respects the environment and builds opportunities and jobs for everyone. That's what we need to do. The transition will not happen overnight. 
We are going to need uh, to work with uh, families right across the country who uh, need to get, you know, get, get adjusted to the new pressures and uh, issues around climate change. We need to make sure that as we develop our natural resources, not just fossil fuel resources, but mines uh, and forestry and all sorts of natural resources, that we do it more efficiently, that we be smarter around the emissions, that we be smarter uh, around using technology uh, to do it better and better. This transition is going to take time and it's going to take money. But one of the things that is a core part of the pan-Canadian framework is an absolute limit on climate change emissions from the oil sands. Alberta has agreed to put an absolute cap on oil sands emissions. Now what that means is within that cap we have to ask questions while we're still reliant as we are as a civilization on fossil fuels, we have to ask ourselves a question, well, what is the best way to develop those resources? What is the safest way to get those resources to market? Because right now, those resources are getting to market on oil car, on rail cars. And we all know that rail cars are more expensive, they are more emitting and polluting, and they are more dangerous for individuals and communities than pipelines are. So by, by listening to the concerns that people have on pipelines, which are two things, two things that people, we, by creating pipelines you take pressure off oil by rail, and I know a lot of grain farmers will be pleased to know uh, that there is more room for carrying uh, grain on rail than oil cars. Um, that's an issue that's come up every year, especially this year. There's another bumper year. I don't think we'll be the, as bad as we were in 2013. I know we won't, uh, but we're monitoring it carefully. So all these issues together means there are parts of the country that are very upset that we haven't approved every pipeline. There are other parts of the country that are very upset that we've approved any pipelines. And any time you make a big decision, you have to try and uh, figure out what is in the best interest of Canada. How to move forward, manage this transition, uh, get ourselves to be less reliant on fossil fuels, develop an economy that is able to do the greener, uh, positive solutions that we know are going to be the jobs of the future, uh, and uh, do it in a way uh, that respects the national interest. That is the decision that we took. We've put world-class oceans protections plan in place on our coast to make sure uh, that we are protecting uh, our vulnerable ecosystems, that we're uh, doing you know, uh, the, the world-leading uh, spill response if there are any accidents, that we're able to manage this. Uh, these are the things that we're doing that are allaying a number of fears. Won't convince everyone that we have to move forward this way. Uh, but I know that most Canadians understand that you can't make a choice between the environment and the economy. You have to do them both together responsibly, and that's what we're doing. So there's uh, what the Prime Minister had to say about, well, he said to the young man who challenged him. I like that line, all sorts of natural resources. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. But it has been and continues to be quite a time with the situation in the United States and U.S. mainstream media in, well, full flight. But, but one of the things they've, they've written about and complained about is Israel's prime minister tweeting his support of U.S. President Donald Trump building a wall on the U.S.-Mexico border. And uh, the prime minister tweeted the wall that he built is 99% effective. So the question is, uh, for many, is Israel's relationship with the Trump administration significantly better than it was with that of Barack Obama? Probably will be. And uh, Israel's reaction to the tweet by the prime minister, I wonder what that's going to be, welcoming refugees to Canada in response to Donald Trump's executive action. Now, Friday was United Nations International Holocaust Remembrance Day, and Israel's Consul General to Canada, Khalid Baram, is in Hamilton to address the influence of the Holocaust on modern Israel. How relevant is it? It's a public question and answer session at 7 o'clock this evening at Addis Israel Synagogue in Hamilton. And the Consul General joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Consul General Khalid Baram, Consul General to Canada. Consul General, thank you so much for the time. A pleasure and an honor to speak with you. 
Uh, hello, Roy. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a, it's a real pleasure. Let's speak, first of all, about the, uh, the Holocaust Remembrance Day, the significance in the United Nations International Holocaust Remembrance Day. What is the significance? What can, must never be forgotten? What must never be set aside? Well, um, the decision to uh, declare January 27th as the Holocaust Remembrance Day was actually an Israeli initiative in 2005 that was presented to the United Nations and sponsored by the United States. It was presented uh, by, by Israel at the time. It was important for us, uh, Israelis, the Israeli government uh, and the Israeli foreign uh, ministry, led at the time by uh, Foreign Minister uh, Silvan Shalom, uh, to have one day that is dedicated to the worst uh, catastrophe on an international scale. Uh, of course, for the Jewish uh, uh, people, it was a devastating blow, but definitely there is an international significance to that. And it was important that uh, among the so many other days that are uh, recognized, uh, officially recognized by the United Nations, one day will be dedicated to the memory of the Holocaust and to the lessons that should be drawn from that. And uh, yet today, in 2017, hate crimes continue, and hate crimes, the most uh, identifiable group of people who are subjected to hate crimes, the ones who are most subjected more than any other group, are Jews in Canada, the United States, Western Europe, other parts of the world. That has to be significantly concerning, based on what you've just told us, what we need to remember and must never repeat. That's right. That's right. We uh, definitely, it's, it's a very unfortunate situation in which after the, the bitter lessons of the, of the Holocaust that should have been uh, remembered and respected and, uh, and uh, revered, uh, then uh, definitely we see hate crimes that are uh, committed in, in different parts of the world. And, uh, and Jews, in many cases, are, are targeted. Uh, it is important to note that, uh, that education is a key element in that, that uh, usually ignorance, lack of information, um, lead to, to fear in many cases and to hatred. And uh, it is uh, the, the intention of the state of Israel and definitely of the Jewish people to educate and to provide information about Judaism and about what, what being Jewish is all about. Um, Jews and, is, and Israel in general have contributed greatly to, to uh, science and to culture and to literature and uh, to the benefit of, uh, of mankind in general. Um, and these, uh, this contribution sometimes is uh, neglected and put aside uh, because of, of lack of information, because of uh, ignorance. I, I believe that uh, education and openness and dialogue are, are a key element in bringing people together, in uh, opening their eyes, in educating them better, and uh, in teaching them about what uh, the Jewish people and what the, about the state of Israel, what they have to offer to the international community. Consul General, what uh, would Israel's response be to United States? President Donald Trump's decision to stop refugee claimants for 90 days and to end or not allow anyone from the seven identified countries in the Middle East and North Africa to enter the United States for 120 days. And the, pri the president says it is in order to assess the situation and make sure the United States is safeguarded against terror attack. You know, Roy, you're, you're asking me a question that uh, has to do with the American politics, and I'm an Israeli diplomat serving in Canada, so I have to be very cautious about the words I choose. Of course. Um, but I would like to mention that, that uh, generally speaking, when it comes to the situation in the, in the Middle East, definitely Israel and other moderate countries in the region are facing uh, so many uh, um, obstacles and so many challenges with rising, uh, with rising terrorism, with terror organizations, some of them are uh, on a level of which is unprecedented on a level of cruelty, such as the ISIS, and there are other uh, um, armed militias and other terror organizations, a collapse of uh, regimes, failing states, and waves of refugees that are flooding the Middle East. Before Middle, East, uh, Middle Eastern refugees came knocking on the doors of Europe and Canada and the United States, they uh, flooded countries in the Middle East 
Jordan is among them in Turkey as well. Uh, Israel has done its own share in providing medical assistance and help to Syrian refugees uh, who approached the, the border with Israel, even though Syria and Israel are officially uh, enemy countries. But when it comes to medical aid, when it comes to uh, wounded children, then of course no questions are being asked. And uh, Israel has provided uh, medical assistance to 2,600 uh, Syrian uh, refugees. Um, when, when it comes to the many challenges uh, that the United States is facing today, um, I, I would like just to mention a couple of things that uh, Israeli-American relations are very close and very friendly, and we do share a strategic partnership, uh, shared values. Um, both countries, Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East that assures equal rights to its citizens, whether women, minorities, uh, members of the LGBT community. Uh, we also assure freedom of religion, access to holy sites, and freedom of the press. Uh, now, when it comes to uh, bilateral relations uh, between Israel and the United States, as it is with many other countries around the world, then definitely we have to look at the macro level. The relations are very close and friendly, and we cooperate on a large array of subjects, varying from economic cooperation to security to, uh, to cultural and academic exchange. And on the micro level, sometimes there are differences of opinion, but uh, definitely the relations are very positive. I uh, would like to be very cautious when we discuss uh, the, the new administration led by President Trump. I believe that new administrations should be given the opportunity uh, and the time to, to choose their way, to choose their path, and, uh, and to lead their policy. Well, that's what elections are for, isn't it? Definitely so. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. To commemorate United Nations International Holocaust Remembrance Day, the Hamilton Jewish Federation and the Jewish National Fund are together presenting Galit Baram, Consul General of Israel to Canada, on the influence of the Holocaust on modern Israel. How relevant is it? It's a question and answer period, which is going to be uh, at 7 o'clock this evening at Addis Israel Synagogue in Hamilton. Consul General, I'm sure that you are aware that Hamilton is an extremely vibrant Jewish community and uh, tremendous contributors to the city, as you find, I'm sure, across this country. That's right. That's right. We work very closely with uh, Jewish communities around the world, and uh, especially in Canada. I've been lucky enough to serve in this uh, great nation of yours, and it's an amazing country. Uh, Canada and Israel share very close relations, full cooperation on the economic level, on the cultural level, uh, academic exchange, and, uh, of course, a very close friendship and uh, and uh, relationships of, of, uh, of trust, of mutual trust and uh, respect when it comes to the peace process, when it comes to the Canadian involvement in, in our region. Um, in, uh, in November, recently in uh, November, we hosted uh, a, quite a large list of uh, delegations, uh, missions, economic missions from Canada, uh, led by Governor General of Canada, the mayors of Toronto and Montreal, and later uh, missions from British Columbia and from Richmond Hill, uh, the premier of the Ontario, Kathleen Wynne, was in Israel last May. Uh, so definitely things are moving in the right direction. And the Jewish community in Canada is simply amazing. I'm, I'm very deeply impressed by the devotion of the, of the Jewish community here, the dedication not only to Jewish continuity and Jewish education, but the, the deep involvement in the greater community and the willingness to contribute and to share and, uh, and to um, establish and maintain very close and warm ties with all sectors of, uh, of Canadian uh, society. So definitely it was a wonderful opportunity when I was invited by the Jewish community of uh, Hamilton to come here and to meet members of the Jewish community and to talk about the Holocaust as it is perceived from the Israeli point of view, as well as uh, uh, discuss many other issues that have to do with Israel-Canada relations. How do you assess uh, the current government of Canada's relationship with Israel? I know you've spoken generically of it being a very friendly and, and a positive and warm relationship right. with governments, but the Stephen Harper government, um, I, I mean, my, my perception is that the Stephen Harper government maybe had a more close relationship with Israel than you may be finding with the Justin Trudeau relationship. And the Prime Minister last night tweeted that the refugees who cannot make it, you know, refugee claimants who can't make it into the United States are welcome to come to Canada. That's been a bit of a talked about uh, tweet in this country. What about that? 
Well, um, I'll tell you something very frankly. We, Israel did maintain a very close uh, relationship with the, with the Harper government uh, with full support and full cooperation on many issues, and we're lucky enough to have close cooperation and friendship with the Trudeau government as well. Um, it's, uh, several weeks ago, when uh, Israeli statesman uh, Shimon Peres passed away, and uh, a funeral of, uh, was held in Israel, uh, both uh, Harper and Trudeau and uh, members and other members, leading members of in, in Canadian politics, um, uh, came to Israel, especially for the funeral, and participated in the funeral, and met uh, high-ranking Israeli officials as well. I think this is a symbol, a reflection of the very close relations between the two countries. Uh, Canada is one of the most of the friendliest countries in the world when, when it comes to Israel and we of course discuss issues um, on, uh, on in the, through very open channels uh, with full appre- appreciation and, uh, and respect. Um, I must com- uh, compliment the team of the embassy, of the Canadian embassy in uh, Tel Aviv. Um, you are in very good hands, Canadians, when it comes to, to Israel and to Israeli relations. You are represented by top diplomats led by, uh, by Ambassador Deborah Lyons and her team. They know Israel, they understand Israeli society, they, they understand Israeli economy, and uh, we're definitely cooperating with them very closely. A great deal has been said, a great deal has been editorialized, a great deal has been asked about the possibility of a real peace agreement in the Middle East. And uh, the former Secretary of State for the United States, John Kerry, as you, as you know better than most, uh, delivered a, ver- a very um, aggressive speech about about Israel's role and uh, and participation or lack of participation in Mr. Kerry's sense uh, in the two-state solution. Would you be able to put that into a, a perspective that we can uh, perhaps understand those of us who are on the periphery of what's going on? Well, a bit about uh, the the ongoing peace negotiations with the with the Palestinians. Um, the, the situation in the Middle East, as I as I said before, is changing, and uh, moderate countries in the region are facing so many challenges, uh, led by by counterterrorism, the need to join forces in order to fight uh, terrorism and to stabilize uh, the the situation in the region for the benefit of of the populations of all countries uh, involved. Uh, when it comes to uh, uh, to negotiations uh, between Israel and the Palestinians, then they have been conducted with varying levels of, uh, of success, with fluctuating levels of success, not always uh, to the best of, uh, of, of interest of both sides. Um, and the Israeli interest is to, to uh, attract the Palestinians back to the negotiating table in order to discuss a very long list of core issues that should be discussed between the two countries directly, between Israel and the Palestinian Authority. Um, settlements, for example, are one issue, borders, security arrangements between the two countries, economic cooperation, water for example, uh, water is, is growing in importance in the Middle East and uh, is going to be a very crucial subject on the regional agenda very soon. And Israel has a lot to offer when it comes to desalination technology and to water management technology in general. Um, and there are so many other issues that have to do with uh, Palestinian uh, refugees and, um, and uh, security arrangements between the two sides. In Israel's opinion, the only... Uh, possible way of resolving this conflict is through direct negotiations between Israel and the Palestinians. There is no easy way to do it. And both sides will have to make compromises and probably painful compromises, but negotiations and direct negotiations are are necessary. They're vital. They're crucial. There is no way to avoid them. Uh, To our impression, the Palestinians are putting more and more emphasis on the international community these days, trying to work through the international negotiations, and by that, to circumvent the Israel and the option of direct negotiations with Israel, uh, even though only uh, Israel's agreement uh, uh, eventually will lead to a solution that will be accepted by, by both sides. So what we do is actually call the Palestinians to return to the negotiating tables and to be willing to, to make this very brave, this very courageous step and uh, to return to direct negotiations, even though, you know, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. There are no easy solutions, but definitely direct discussions are a necessity. 
Consul General Baram, time goes by very quickly. We have about 60 seconds left. Uh, so the speech or the, the, the talk tonight, the question and answer segment at mm-hmm. the Addis Israel Synagogue is going to be about the influence of the Holocaust on modern Israel. That's How relevant right. is it? Would you address that for us again, please? The, the influence of the Holocaust on Israel today. Well, uh, the memory of the Holocaust is still burning in Israeli society, and uh, now gradually, uh, throughout the years, we're moving from more a more national uh, collective approach to Holocaust remembrance uh, to more personal exp- expressions, and they're reflected in Israeli literature, in music, in cinema, and more openness to discuss the painful memories of the past. Uh, the generation of the grandparents were not able to do that, and their children, our parents, uh, were afraid to touch the subject and didn't want to hurt their own parents. And it's up to us, the grandchildren, to open up the subject, to discuss it, and to find our own expression and our own connection to the painful memories of the past. Consul General uh, Baram, thank you so much for the time. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me. Bye-bye. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.